distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, friends and enemies. I want to point out first that I'm very happy to be here this evening, and I'm thankful for the invitation to come here to Detroit this evening. I must point out, uh, I was in a house last night that was by on my own, but I didn't, it didn't destroy all my clothes at all, but you know what happens when fire dashes through, they get smoky. The only thing I could get my hands on before leaving was what I have on now. And uh, it wasn't, it isn't something that made me lose confidence in what I'm doing, because my wife understands, and I have children from this size on down, and even in their young age, they understand. I think they would rather have a father or a brother or whatever the situation may be who will take a stand in the face of any kind of reaction from narrow-minded people uh, rather than to co compromise and later on have to grow up in shame and in disgrace. That was the beginning of the last full speech that Malcolm X gave before his tragic death at the hands of assassins seven days later. And to all of you white scarves, new and old, I welcome you to the final episodes on the story of Arlington. This is America. Don't got you slipping up. Look how I'm living up. Police be tripping up. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. I gotta carry them. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go get the bag. Yeah, yeah, or I'ma get the pad. Yeah, yeah, I'm so cold like yeah. Yeah, I'm so dull like yeah. We gon' blow like yeah. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to your friends Greg and Toby. As we come to the end of the story of Arlington, when I think about it metaphorically, one could be tempted to say that we're closing the wind door on a particular story, but obviously it's not like these individual worlds necessarily have their own wind door associated with it, which is where the metaphor falls down a little bit. Obviously it was different when we were doing Tiger's Eye because that is a completely separate world, but mm. when we're discussing secret rooms in Arlington and then going on to do Steamheart after this. It's all technically the same Windor, but thematically the idea of us doing our final look at a particular story, even though it's a story that's a part of a set. I've been thinking a lot about endings and thinking in particular about the weird synchronicity of Toby and I during our final look at this story, the fact that the last few chapters of Stone Spring Maidens are going to be coming out over the next couple of weeks, and therefore that's going to be the end of that story and going to lead into our interview of the cast and creators. And at the same time, this episode you're listening to right now will be released to the public just a day or two short of another significant day, Halloween of 2021, which was originally referred to in more Christian sentiment as All Hallows' Eve, a time when they are specifically remembered 
the uh, the deaths of saints and martyrs or just generally those who have passed on in a way that is similar to, say, uh, Dia de los Muertos, the, the stuff that they got into for uh, Coco, an incredible film, and the weird sort of resonance that has with, like, it's a celebration and a remembrance of an ending of sort, but also, in particular, an ending of Thomas and Sarah. As an added bit of synchronicity, after recording this with Toby, I went on to go to my mom's, as I do every day, and we watched the second half of A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, the movie where Tom Hanks plays the inestimable Mr. Rogers. Toward the end of the movie, there was a speech he gave that I found particularly appropriate to this moment, where I am trying to find the words to speak on this particular end. You know, death is something many of us are uncomfortable speaking about. But to die is to be human. And anything human is mentionable. Anything mentionable is manageable. Anything mentionable is manageable. The two of them have passed on, leaving others to try to move on, not just with the work, but with their own lives. Just seeing weird kinds of patterns emerge from the surrounding stuff of the world is something I can't ever completely turn off. But it's also been a really long while since we've come to the end of a story, or to be more accurately in this case, the end of a season, this mm. this season four has gone on particularly long because we used it to include the cartographer's handbook. Mm. And so therefore, this is the first time in many months that Toby and I have had a chance to do a deep dive into how we feel at the end of a story, much the way mm. we did at the end of the previous three books, particularly in regards to uh, Tiger's Eye and the way that resonated with us on various levels. So it, it feels like to a certain extent we have something large to live up to here, but there's also a weight that mm. I think comes with finally coming to the end of a story that the two of us have been working on and how it feels to have our final thoughts on the story, whatever it is they are, whatever mm. it, is it brings up for us. To be at this particular point in the road. When you were talking about how everything about our branding feels like what mm -hmm. we're doing here is closing the wind door on another installment of the New Century universe. And, you know, that I like that to a certain degree. It's quite neat. It's quite tidy. But I agree with you that it doesn't necessarily wholly apply especially because if we're to say that in that way of oh we're closing the book on arlington in the same way that we close the book on tiger's eye and all the others that's not quite what we're doing here mm. really we're not closing the book on arlington because that implies that we've said all there is to be said and i've emphasized this repeatedly in the past but just because Greg and I spend more hours 
talking about this than most other people and we're probably just a close second to Alex and Sharon themselves uh <laughs> we are not an authority on this all we are doing here is exploring our own reflections on these stories and to be honest what we're giving to you here in each season isn't even the final word on what these stories mean to us just what we feel towards them at this point in our lives mm. whether it's a first reading in our news of the century or if it's just a second reading or like i think most of these are a second or if not third reading for me mm -hmm. of these stories after maybe a gap of time there is a likelihood that we'll come back to these stories for one mm -hmm. reason or another heck just the nature of this series means that we are constantly rewinding to previous stories and thinking about them and applying them to new developments, new trajectories that this whole ongoing saga takes us on. So we don't really close the book on any of this. We just set it down. You use the metaphor of a book and the idea of closing a book definitely has more of a sense of finality to it because the story is done. But mm. if we use instead the metaphor that I referenced earlier, closing a door, great thing about mm. a door is that as long as you don't damage it or lose the key, you can always open and close the door as much as you want to. And, yeah. you know, we'll have to letting the uh, the various cats of Rama in and out of the door. No. <laughs> <laughs> is the spinoff of Through the Wind Door, Through the Cat Door. Um <laughs> Through the wind flap. <laughs> Technically, the spinoff of Through the Wind Door is Century Tales, which already has mm. a cat motif. Associated. Well, this is why I make the reference. <laughs> I think for us, we both have a well-worn and well-used set of keys in front of us that just takes us through each of the doors of New Century because we're constantly revisiting these places emotionally or analytically we are always my mind is often with new century that sort of like feeling of it occupies our thoughts and therefore as i mentioned during our time travel interview we're always time travelers in a sense yes. we're always rewinding and revisiting places even if they're technically done they're in the past that doesn't make it any less something that we engage with in our present and future. No, you're absolutely right. I, I was thinking about that very metaphor, actually, without remembering exactly where that metaphor had been pulled from. You're right, it was part of our conversation with Jesse. The very nature of the work that we do with this world requires us to look at it non-linearly as we move mm. back and forth along the timeline and mm. use it to have previous stuff inform on our experience with something. When we were reading Tiger's Eye, we would call back to stories like Let Them Go and Secret Rooms, even though those worlds weren't a part of Tiger's Eye yet, but it's still all connected because it's the same author. And he has a commonality of purpose in regards to these things. What we learn about what Alex cares about in previous books, we can see elements of in later books, and that's how it all ties together. On top of that, though, 
when we're talking about why it doesn't feel like we're closing the book on Arlington, it ties together a little bit with some of my thoughts when I was writing notes for this episode, is that I reflected on, due to its very nature, the end of Arlington, this story, doesn't really feel like an ending. Just like the movie of Malcolm X, it feels like a snapshot of a very specific moment in time. These people lived, loved, did their best to affect change. Thomas and Sarah died and the world moved on. One of my favorite quotes, the thing that I've been carrying with me ever since I was young because I saw the movie very young, is that there are no happy endings because nothing ends. That is a line that was taken directly from Peter Beagle's novel of The Last Unicorn. I first saw it, of course, in the movie, but it's always just sort of stuck with me through everything else that I've taken in, whether it's books or movies or video games or whatever it is, anything that's telling a story. And a corollary that one could associate with that is if there are no happy endings because nothing ends, then maybe we could also say that there are no sad endings. The world did not end with Thomas and Sarah, and they left not only an indelible mark on what came after, but as I mentioned a moment ago, they left others to continue the work. Not just the work, but... There are other lives to follow. These lives may have come to an end, but there are other people that we care about that we are going to see more of as they are affected by the loss of Thomas and Sarah and they continue to exist in the world and also to affect change. On top of that, the story of the Arlingtons was originally meant to be part of a larger work, as we have referenced before, in terms of the evolution of New Century. Steamheart was supposed to be one book that would include the stories of Secret Rooms, Tiger's Eye, and Arlington as a part of the larger thing. And as we've kind of seen at this point, Trying to tell all of these stories as one book would have been an enormous book that, mm. yeah, I, I feel like Alex's decision to divide it up among four to give each story its own space was one of the best choices he could have made. Without and question. Coming back to the original topic about not feeling like an ending, when you have a multi-part series... It is possible for each book to feel like a complete story. Tiger's Eye definitely feels like that. Mm. But Arlington straddles the lines because, as we'll get into when we talk about Steamheart, the epilogue for this book, the final chapter, happens in the same space as the epilogue for Steamheart. There is a lot left to be revealed. The fate of Harry and Annie and Frank as they go on the journey of Steamheart, along with, well, we know Raven survives, of course, but we don't know what happens to Raven, 
along the journey, along with everybody else that's going to be taking that trip. Jeremy, Abigail, James. Maybe that's a little bit of a spoiler to say that, but then again, we've, we've led into the idea that uh, James and Abigail's story wasn't done you with know what? Runs, so. Our very next recording session for the main series is us talking about the first collection of chapters for Steamheart. I think we can probably let <laughs> it out that Abigail and James are playing a role in that book. Yeah, exactly. The point is, is that the ending of Arlington occupies this weird in-between liminal space mm. because the stories of some of the other characters revealed in this book, their fates are part of the ending of a different book. Yeah. And to a certain extent, Arlington as a novel may feel unfinished as a result, an equivalent to, say, The Empire Strikes Back of Phase 1. But then again, we also said the same of Secret Rooms once upon a time, that its epilogue was literally pushing us towards the story is not done here, done, 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 we have a cliffhanger. And also the fact that we felt that James and Abigail seemed to have unfinished arcs, that they began something in Secret Rooms that was not completely resolved, and we're going to see the resolution of that particular arc in the books to come. That also means that it is a relief that we're going to be talking about Steamheart next <laughs> and give this first arc of New Century a proper resting point in terms of all of the characters that we have visited th thus far. I do take your point. More than some of the other New Century books, Arlington feels like a story that ends in the middle of things. But I don't necessarily mean that in the sense that it doesn't have a conclusion or an ending. The story of Arlington is exactly what Annie describes it as at the start of the book. It's about the time leading up to the day Arlington died. These are two people who were centrally involved in the ongoing plans of a nation of people recovering from societal collapse. Having a tragedy that concludes with their deaths inherently means that there will be a feeling of unfinished work by the conclusion of their story. Mm. As such, it becomes a story about doing your best with the time that you have to try and right the scales of the world, even when the reality of life means that you won't see the end result. All you can do is plant the seeds and hope that was enough. Mm. And of course, in the case of Malcolm X, that story obviously ends tragically. And I imagine when Spike Lee was doing that, they'd be like, that's an unhappy ending. How do we provide some level of not necessarily resolution, but catharsis? Mm. And in that movie, he chose to provide it in terms of young people taking example from what Malcolm did from his life. His story came to an end, but the hope comes from other young people taking up the banner and mm -hmm. saying before the camera, I'm Malcolm X! I'm Malcolm X! I'm Malcolm X! Whoever I'm you Malcolm are, X. 
I am someone that is going to try and make the world better with this person as an example. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, one of the elements was actually Nelson Mandela quoting Malcolm's words. Based on the timeline of when Spike Lee's movie was released in 1992, the scene shown would have been filmed after his release from prison, but before his ascendancy to the role of first black president of South Africa. He is speaking before a class of South African children about Malcolm, in a mirror to the female teacher moments before, doing the same before a bunch of American children. As Brother Malcolm said, we declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be given the rights of a human being, to be respected as a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day. Mandela is an example of someone that was himself a revolutionary. And even though he went through many trials himself, his story has a happier ending. They did bring about lasting change to South Africa. And I'm not saying it's perfect down there, but it is far better than it was when it was under the rule of apartheid and everything like that. So you sort of have to find your catharsis where you can, even if an individual story ends in tragedy. It's the refutation of what the assassination is sort of constructed to achieve, that erasure of mm. this figure and their ongoing influence on a political landscape, on a societal landscape, on a cultural landscape. Mm. And the way you refute that is by showing the ongoing effects of these mm. people, the telling of their story, even if the events of it feel as if they are, have been senselessly interrupted and that there was so much that this person either needed to do or they just deserve to be able to do, whether or not they accomplished anything else afterwards. When you have a story that has events like that that feel in and of itself such a unfairness, the only way to make it not necessarily right, because it can never be right, but the right response to that is to say, no, what you wanted won't happen. Mm. It shall not happen because we are telling their story Mm -hmm. Their story shall be continued to be told and retold and their effects will continue to be reflected on and discussed and thought about. It is the only response to the action that is done to silence someone is to speak about them and encourage them to, to never stop being spoken about. I love that you somehow just by being yourself, by following your own thought process, 
you keyed into something that I came across uh, and wanted to very much bring up as a part of this discussion. I've been rereading Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed. The book is not about racism, but it is partly about activism and the ways in which the protagonist discovers the problems and limitations and toxic aspects of their own society, as well as the way they try to work around or change those systems. And I could go on and on about this story, but obviously we have a different story to talk about. I just wanted to reference this one quote, which I highlighted and actually put into the New Century Forum. You can't crush ideas by suppressing them. You can only crush them by ignoring them, by refusing to think, by refusing to change. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely people in the world that are aggressively trying to do that. The problem is that they're also aggressively trying to suppress ideas, trying to remove the people one way or another that are talking about them. And mm. that ideally just makes people fight back all the harder to keep the conversation going among the people that want to make the change. Since clearly mm. there are people out there that don't want to make the change. It's like, well, we have to find a way to do it in spite of their not wanting to be included in spite of their insistence on not mm. wanting to think in spite of their insistence on not wanting to change mm. a sentiment that is just as relevant in our world as it is in new century i'm realizing to myself that some of my favorite either stories or moments in stories are the ones that tap into something that feels like to me a fundamental truth of the meaning of essentially the meaning of life in a modern world a modern climate with modern understandings of everything that the world is and people are that there is a overwhelming amount of encroaching selfishness and cruelty that will assert itself to be the universal state of things and yet you have to do that essential thing that can be no better expressed or more succinctly stated than that often quoted uh, line from Mr. Rogers is, look for the helpers, look for the people helping in these times of hardship. I just today was watching the concluding episode of a popular streaming series that I shan't say in this episode, there is just a moment that is essentially comes down to someone making a wager that human cruelty or just human people ignoring another person's suffering and just doing nothing in the face of it is just the state of things and someone else wagering that that, that is not the case. Mm. And by the end of it, even though this other person essentially goes to their grave believing that they really understand the way of things mm, the mm. person who survives sees that the outcome of that wager was that they were wrong yeah someone did come someone did help this person this essentially this test subject that they were discussing and i earlier this week talked with alex and sharon about the uh, Netflix Castlevania series and mm. a big part of that it 
it opens with this thesis from Dracula that humanity is cruel and will not change and has proven that it does not deserve to be given the chance. And the rest of that show shows instances of people finding reasons to at least carry on for themselves and say that isn't the way that Mm. isn't true if you get rid of humanity you would end cruelty but you end kindness too Mm. and kindness does exist and i think that's what some of my favorite moments in stories come down to is it doesn't have to be that anime moment where everyone's positive energy channels into the spirit bomb and destroys the embodiment of evil it's not about that that is not i will never summon a spirit bomb in order to like get myself out of bed in the morning what i will need as a way to carry forward is finding that belief within myself that there is human kindness that there will always be some people that are trying to make things better and that is enough to keep going forward that doesn't mean that's enough to save the day but it's mm. enough to keep us going and it's enough that's to keep what us we trying need. to save the day exactly mm-hmm. and that's what we need also i've only watched a little bit of castlevania i watched i believe the first two seasons but i i love that you brought it up and brought up specifically Dracula's mindset in this because considering the stuff that we've been discussing about the similarities between oh god Seth and Dracula <laughs> and Dracula yeah. he absolutely has a similarity to the uh, the Netflix Castlevania's dr- version of Dracula in that in his conclusions and Okay, listeners, if you want to hear my thoughts about Castlevania, just <laughs> listen to the School of Movies episode that will either be out or will be coming out. And I know that two of our listeners will already know my thoughts because you were there. Hi, Alex. Hi, Sharon. Um, <laughs> and a lot of stuff recently, that's what comes forward, is mm-hmm. this philosophy, this mantra that is so pervasive throughout New Century. It's a series that doesn't shy away from the hardships, the pervasiveness of enduring cruelty, but it absolutely routinely and repeatedly makes itself about human kindness. Mm. Yeah, that's all something that we need, not just in life, but we need in our media as well, as you say, mm-hmm. to keep us going. I definitely want to talk more <laughs> about some of our final thoughts on Seth. That's a yeah. good portion of what we have going forward. But before we get to that, and on the positive side of the stuff that we have lined up to talk about, one of the thoughts that really came to mind is, obviously there are reasons why we chose to shake up the order of things, mm. and decide to talk about stories not in published order, but in terms of the new suggested reading order that Alex came up with after feedback from everybody, where we are moving 
directly from Arlington to Steamheart. And the fact that means that a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about for the last several months at this point is all fresh in our minds when we bring it to our next season, so to speak. The Princess Thieves is a great book, and I can't wait to talk about it. But it feels good to delay it to a point where Alex can do the remaster that he'd wanted to do and make it available to more people to listen to that have not, so that gives us more of a potential audience for us to reach when we start to do our deep dive on that. Mm. But it also means that all these books that we've been covering ever since February of last year are finally leading to a central point without any interruptions, even let them go Mm. to a certain extent. Although that one story does have a a significant separation in between even uh, let them go and the cartographer's handbook, because it's a different Mm. place and it has a different thematic resonance to it, as opposed to secret rooms, Arlington and Steamheart, particularly in terms of location characters and finding a way to bring in the outside world of Tiger's Eye, because that will be a part of our discussion of Steamheart, bringing together all these different worlds and the doors that have opened between them and bringing that to a thematic conclusion. Mm. Season five is going to go crazy. Yeah, season five, well, season five is going to go crazy just because it's going to take us forever to cover it. There's just so much meat to work with there. And I love all this fresh insight that we've gotten with Frank and Annie by doing the deep dive. We're going to be revisiting that almost immediately because chapter two of Steamheart is going to be Frank centric. And of course, you've made reference to some of the stuff with Annie in terms of revisiting her past as well inside Steamheart, which will because give us... I can't help myself. Yeah, well, we neither of us can help ourselves. We've already read all these books. Even as we're talking about the story we're talking about, we can't wait to talk about the story that comes <laughs> afterwards. We, are, we totally are. Oh yeah. my god, we're such teasers. We're just sort of like, <laughs> okay, and now here we are with us reviewing our final thoughts on this book. But aren't we excited about the next book? We have to keep <laughs> focused. We can't talk about New Century. Greg, we need to talk about New Century. <laughs> yeah. I've really enjoyed through the window enabling this reassessment of a decent reading order for the series like there will never be anything wrong with experiencing things in chronological release order that's just how reality works you're never going to convince some people of that so it's like to say that's the wrong way would just feel misguided but going through the catalogue of new century books that currently exist and thinking about what hops you can make here and there without leaving any of them behind brings a new kind of life to an ongoing story that already felt so alive and yes Arlington works really well before Steamheart and fills me with anticipation Mm -hmm. this has been a very heavy season four filled Mm. with all of the stuff that pushes us directly into the next story and is going to allow us to have a proper thematic arc that in some ways 
works even better than what they were trying to build with all of the movies in the MCU prior to Avengers. Because Mm. at that point, they were still in some ways trying to figure out how to tell their various stories. Mm. And um, they didn't quite have it all down yet. In Alex's case, trying to build everything towards Steamheart, the fact that it was all one story at one point in his mind actually works to the benefit of the structure here in that it wasn't a case of, oh, okay, I'm going to tell one story, and then, okay, where can I build Mm. off of from after that? The the framework of the story was already there, so he knows, like, okay, this, then this, then this, then this, and then it's just a matter of filling in all the interstitial stuff, the character moments. It's indicative of the difference of what happens when you... Like, some of the best stories that are out there are things that are crafted beforehand that makes you feel like you can see the connective tissue already present, and Mm. this leading on to that actually makes sense. Aspects of Babylon 5 are one of the great examples of that, because even though there are stories, filler stories in the middle of that, that feel like they maybe don't contribute as much to the overall arc of character and story and everything like that. There's so much more of it that was already in place before they filmed one scene of it. And even though that series had its own issues along the way in terms of actors and their characters moving on and interference from execs and the TV channel you know, canceling and then not canceling and everything mm-hmm. like that. It still feels like it was built with a uniformity of purpose. Mm. And that is very present here in everything that New Century has done so far and honestly is continuing to do as Alex, at this point, has actually completed at least the story writing aspect of Phase 2, even if we have several audio dramas yet to come out and to Mm. complete his artistic vision for this set of stories and everything. Yeah, and for you guys who are caught up on the audio drama and have been enjoying Stone Spring Maidens, because why wouldn't you? We can confirm, we've read the rest of Phase 2. Y'all got some good shit coming up. (laughs) Yeah. In spite of any any individual misgivings or any difficult parts of the story that may have happened, and obviously you can hear some of those thoughts in our uh, News of the Century episodes and everything like that, the meat of it is just some really solid stuff that keeps us engaged and makes us excited for what comes next. Mm-hmm. Like if you if any of you have enjoyed the arc of Stone Spring Maiden so far, and honestly, why wouldn't you? It's kind of amazing. You are not prepared for what's coming down the road in Panther Soul. And unfortunately, uh I mean you can still read it. 
you yeah. can still read the script, as Alex would put it. Uh, but it's I ex- a script, Alex. I'm, it's a good book. You hush your face, sir. It is a good book. I mean, we both of us read it and were blown we, away by it. We talked for literal hours about why it's a good book. So, just yeah, hush your face. Listen to News of the Century again. Just, <laughs> but but on on the same vein of it, I expect hearing Panther Soul actually come to life in the way Alex intends is going to be actually amazing and add the the further depth to it that he always desires when yeah. laying out these stories. Even if some of it is going to be more difficult to listen to, I actually mentioned briefly that it, it came up on Discord at one point when there was a discussion of horror movies and uh-huh. I mentioned how it might have been difficult for me to actually get through Let Them Go if it was presented as a visual story. Mm. The audio drama added components, which made it more difficult for me to be at a remove, and so therefore made me more tense and you know, brought stuff up in me that made it difficult to take in at certain parts. But the fact that I didn't have to watch it at the same time I was listening to it meant that I was actually able to get through it that first time and that everything that is great about Alex's writing and his storytelling gripped me enough that even though I was trepidatious about that being my first entry into New Century, it ended up convincing me, yes, this is something that I want to have more of. But that's all. That's also just my individual sensibilities. I realize that mm-hmm. I have certain issues and triggers and stuff that other people don't. And there are a lot of people out there that are talking about things like the Candyman movie, which uh, the the new one by Ania DaCosta, which Alex and Sharon mm-hmm. and Karu and Debbie were talking about this week. Karu and Debbie, I think in particular, really like horror movies or they like talking about horror movies at the very least i know that they've been pulled upon several times in the past to talk about things like halloween and stuff like that that that's a genre that they like digging into uh i would not be able to talk as intelligently about those kind of things just because it would take so much in general for me to watch them in particular um, mm. The one exception being, you know, a couple notable differences, like say pitch aliens. black. Yeah, <laughs> yes, aliens. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But like pitch black or the Happy Death Day duology, I could talk about until the cows come home. Um, I really need to see the second one. I, oh, I, I, I definitely yeah. recommend it. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, Greg. I couldn't catch. What was the name of that show that uh, they just did? No, no, you're not getting me into what? That, what? I genuinely like you just like say it to me a couple more times. I'm sure I'll get it. Toby, you can't see, but the office that I'm sitting in has a bathroom next door. I can literally see the mirror out of the. (laughs) (laughs) I am not not tempting. (laughs) I have a mirror here too. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. My victim. 
B as in bees. B. <laughs> Not the bees. Yeah. I, I, I saw the I saw the original uh, Candyland um, like this this week. It was the day that episode came out, and mm. um, it's good. It's a it's a fascinating one. It's totally bewildering when you see it, and it's just like wow. There's just like everything about this, like everything that you could possibly do with this, it's sitting right there. And yet he's going after like the impoverished and really like mm. put down local black community. What? Why? Yeah. Like, listen to that show. Like, you know, yeah, fine. exactly. No, mm. no, you, you, you should listen to the most recent school of movies in order to get a full, Hot, a uh, for uh, for a you know real left swerve of a through the window take there, you know, listen to the most <laughs> recent school of movies. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's through the window. All of its bones, the, the the structure of what we do here is already heavily based on not just New Century, but Alex and Sharon's podcasting sensibilities. Some of the tricks of the trade I've pulled, I've lifted directly from things that School of Movies has done, because I've always been impressed by the different components that he's able to bring together in order to make it more of a listening experience than people just sitting in rooms and talking. The idea of telling people, first of all. I don't know that there's anybody that listens to us that doesn't already listen to School of Movies, so it's not it's not really well, to that here. one to those two people out there. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> but I yeah, can you imagine meantime... someone listening to School of Movies and going, "Oh, these fuckers are just really copying through the window <laughs> wholesale." Oh, holy shit! No, no, goodness. <laughs> now I know that um, Alex has said some very nice things about us. Finding our groove relatively early. The simple truth is that if Through the Window found its voice quickly, if we managed to make the right editing choices, to avoid pitfalls, to make our creation come to life as vibrantly as we have, then it is entirely due to the example that School of Movies set for us. You know, one having good teachers, man. Yeah, exactly. We have had good teachers. We should talk about Arlington, right? Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> I have to get back to the subject. This is the Arlington. Oh, this is the final Arlington episode. We need this, to discuss. This is kind of like this is the weird thing about the like finales to our seasons is that it's kind of like a treat for us because you know we've gone all the way through. We get to just kind of sit and chat. It's a bit mm-hmm. so like we structure it. We always think a lot about what we want to say, what we want to come to these sessions with but it's definitely like the end of a sort of school year when you're in the last week all the exams are done and everyone's just kind of like you know you'll take the opportunity to learn you know some cool things that maybe were a bit off syllabus that, like that sort of thing but also just kind of let your hair down and everything so mm-hmm. this is a, as much a treat for us as it absolutely i'm sure is for everyone listening so uh, if we go a bit like off script or anything mm. like that, I think we've earned that. Going off script is a part of the Through the Wind Door brand. So 
you know mm. that's that, yeah. that's it's, I, it's I hear good things about century tales i hear good, <laughs> hear good things about century tales oh yeah no that's going to be an exciting one i don't think anyone is going to be prepared for that because we really um shake things up a little bit i mean Listening to Maureen and I talk in general is a lot of fun. You've had a chance to hear some of that, but um, I really wanted to do something different with Century Tales in terms of moving above and beyond what we were already doing here, you and I. So I'll be interested to get feedback and see how all of that works and how it's going to shape conversations Maureen and I have in the future about New Century. I mean, dude, like, hearing through the window without me there, sign me the fuck on. You just got rid of the weak link right there. Oh, uh, no, no, sir. Self-effacing humor. It's okay, a bad fair. habit, but it's, yeah, yeah. Okay. it's there. All right. Hamasha and Arlington. Yeah, no, that's that's the next topic on our list before we have our, well, one of our final discussions on Seth. We spend a lot of time over the course of this story talking about Hamarsha because of the fact that this is a tragedy, as in tragedy storytelling, whether you're talking about old Grecian plays or Shakespearean plays or Gothic stories, you know, because some of those can be tragedies as well, especially if you look at some of the stuff with Poe and everything like Mm. that. Or alternately, H.P. Um, Lovecraft, but <laughs> the Western genre also has is twinned with tragedies. Uh, oddly enough, that it does come up quite a bit because yeah. a lot of them get steeped in the sort of whole revenge tragedy mm-hmm. angle of things. Going into the root of a tragedy in a series that is based in a sort of Western setting definitely feels in keeping with previous stories that I think we've experienced. Yeah. But back when I first decided to include the idea of tragedy storytelling in the discussion of Arlington, I was unsure if I was opening a can of worms. Thematically, narratively, it makes sense to discuss it in that vein, just as we have discussed elements of let them go and secret rooms from the gothic standpoint because those stories are heavily influenced by other stories in that genre but Mm. there is also the larger picture the reality that this story is based on while america does not have a monopoly on this idea there is a distinct tendency for activists particularly black activists, activists of color, too, because, you know, this stuff not only happens everywhere, but I'm thinking of some of the recent bullshit in regards to First Nations peoples and the abuses that they have suffered uh, regarding oil pipelines going through their lands and everything like that. For a good example of a fictional story based on real American Indian activism, I recommend Thunderheart which incorporates elements of the story of Lakota activist Leonard Peltier. Alternately, also the real-life documentary of those events, narrated by Robert Redford, called Incident at Oglala. These people suffer abuse and sometimes are even assassinated by outside forces, whether it's the people that 
want to continue the status quo or it's by people that just hate much in the way that there are people that hated Thomas and Sarah. And the idea that wanting to change the world for the better is somehow a fatal flaw grates at our sensibilities. Thomas and Sarah deserve better. Malcolm and Mm. Martin deserved better. Harvey Milk, Huey Newton, Marsha Johnson, Megger Evers, they all deserved better. I did a little bit of research about specifically activists that were murdered, very likely as a response to the work that they were doing. And in this research, I found out that 227 environmental activists were murdered last year alone. I'm going to get these names pronounced incorrectly. I tried looking up how to pronounce them, but I couldn't get proper information. A woman named Fikile Nishangasi of South Africa and a man named Oscar Erayud Adams of Mexico. They were killed last year. They were environmental activists fighting for the survival of all people. And someone decided to stop them permanently. And they deserved better. It shouldn't be fatal or a flaw to want to change a world that desperately needs changing. But even in a fictional reality, Alex found that he had to stand up and reflect the way that the world is and not the way that we want it to be. America may not be the biggest nation recalcitrant to change. I mean, based on some of the stuff I've seen in the UK, but I'm sure that there's, as is clear from like the number, 227 environmental activists dead in 2020 shows this kind of bullshit exists everywhere. But I am an American. And maybe as a result of that, it, I would need your feedback to know more about how you perceive American news or whatever it is, you know, learning about whatever's going on in America. It feels like we're the loudest nation in terms of being <laughs> stupid about these things, the most dysfunctional one in these regards. And that's what I think about when I think about the end of Arlington. I would put it as, like, the loudest voice will always be the person next to you, mm. which means that stupidity in <laughs> and in your own nation will always just be that sort of, oh, fuck, like, that yeah. sort of response. But that doesn't mean that you don't hear the person across the ways speaking into a loudspeaker, you know? It's one of those things that I don't know if that means that I equate it as in terms of like decibels of stupidity. <laughs> I don't I don't necessarily say that the US is or is not like the loudest in that regard. I just think that for everyone, you will always be the most disappointed in what people are doing right next to you because mm. you're there you want to contribute to the voices that are saying, no, stop this, but you see it 
happen right before you anyway mm. and i think it's probably ties into that feeling that uh, uh thomas and seth tap into when thomas asks seth like you know you're going to lay the blame at me for what you know the same people did to to me and my generations of my people before me and then seth says like if not you who else I have no such personal, like, heritage history of being wronged in that same way that Tom speaks of. But it's that feeling of I am seeing the very worst things that this country I live in does. And am I going to sit here and say, well, that's just other people? No, I'm going to lament that this is like where I am and say we need to be better mm. even though I could very easily just say god fucking just fuck those people in particular but it's just a we need to be better scenario to turn it back to uh, what you were discussing in terms of this tragedy here and the idea that it's difficult to necessarily view Arlington in those terms when you look at it and think, so the tragedy was that they were trying to make a difference at all and mm. their environment didn't allow that. That feels like a real condemnation of that for no good reason if we were to interpret it in that way. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're touching on here is exactly what came to mind as I was reading through your notes and reflecting on what the Hamasha or tra central tragedy of Arlington is. If we consider the story to be the tragedy of Thomas and Sarah Arlington, it initially seems to fit because what happens to them is tragic and we can identify fatal characteristics to them rather than those characteristics being inherent flaws necessarily, mm -hmm. which have steered them to their ultimate course. Categorizing these characteristics as capital F flaws that have caused their deaths and contributes to a feeling of Hamasha feels disingenuous and like we're taking away from Thomas and Sarah's story. As I said in our previous episode, it didn't matter what Thomas and Sarah said to the crowd of Washington in their final moments, at least in regards to the people responsible for their ultimate fate mm. it mattered for the people who would carry it forward so what they say very much matters to the end of arlington but if we're to look at the tragic component of this story that tragic destination what they said did not affect the decisions of their assassins mm. what this feels like then is not the tragedy of two specific individuals with a cocktail of virtues and flaws that result in a fate that is entirely of their own making. It is, to me, instead a tragedy of a collective. It is the mm. tragedy of America. Hyperbolic and overdramatic? Yes, that statement may very well be. But it is nevertheless exactly what this feels like that Thomas and Sarah were battling for the soul of a nation of people, and the death of them feels like irreparable damage to America's soul, or 
perhaps that's not even the case and their deaths are just indicative of that erosion of a population's compassion and will to grow. If this is the tragedy of America's downfall, then the embodiment of humanity's virtues and more laudable qualities are in the Arlingtons, and it is our fatal flaw, that part of ourselves that stays in the caves and refuses to come into the light and go beyond our known borders, that robs us of our positive potential future and dooms us to this tragic fate. Perhaps this is an assessment that doesn't work. Tragedies are traditionally all about characters and individuals. Can a genre with such specific trappings really be abstracted into a wider social examination or commentary? Well, perhaps not typically, but I believe the possibilities are there and Arlington to me feels like exactly that, the tragedy of ourselves collectively. I really like reading this conclusion of yours back when you first sent it to me. And I've been thinking about it a little bit, both before when I first read it and as you were just talking about it. There are definitely elements of the idea of tragedy not resting on an individual, but rather resting on the community, on the collective. It is present in movies and books and other sources of media. And sometimes it is even the direct focus as an example that is specifically associated with sort of the very genre that we're working within. Humans are the real monsters is often mm. a component of zombie outbreaks. You know, you're walking deads, uh, anything involving Romero. In that case, it is the flaws of humanity that often lead us to the place where we are. And the intriguing thing about the founding document, the founding piece of media that the story of New Century is based upon, uh, World War Z, the thing that influenced Alex into telling this story, is that that is a story that includes both the tragedy and the hope. Both the behavior of individuals in this story and the behavior of the collective in this story led to a tragedy that could have potentially been avoided and resulted in the deaths of many people and the near destruction of known civilization. But there were also individuals that helped bring it back. There were individuals that survived to tell the story. So there is a duality in that that we definitely hope for. It's just that in the case of Arlington, the hope that we want to see is actually reserved for the following book. The tragedy of Arlington as a story has to rest on itself. And the hope that appears to be present is unfortunately tainted. I'm not saying there aren't positive moments in that final chapter. We see the passing of the torch to Catherine, who herself will go on to become a major player. We see Sarah's gift to Vice President Riley, passed on by truth. But we also hear the cynical words of Raven. And we see the darkness present in every action that Mr. White takes, as we went over last time. So, yeah. so Arlington as a story ends in a darker place, and we have to wait for 
the hope inherent in what is to come in Steamheart to mm. give us a denouement, a restoration of order mm. for this particular arc, at least. Because Steamheart was one of, if not their last gear that they set up mm-hmm. in motion yeah it was exactly. their last it was their last thing that seed they planted before Prior they were taken to... off the board yeah exactly yeah. yeah which means that what we're seeing in steamheart is the outcome of that last venture of theirs and that's why i think it's even more important to move on to steamheart because I, we shouldn't sort of leave off in this place where we don't know if that last gamble of theirs paid off. It's mm. worthwhile to see this through, to see the deeds of the Arlingtons seen through to their conclusion. Steamheart takes with it the hope of a nation, the hope of humanity. And in the many, many months to follow, we're going to explore what form that actually takes. The good places and the dark places that that story goes to, but also how we feel in the culmination of that story and its qualitative difference to the ending of this one. At the end of each New Century book, we keep coming to the same place, which is, I'm excited for what places we go next Mm. and how that is especially true after diving as deep as we do on these stories because we understand everything about like how this clock was put together mm-hmm. and now we get to go to the next one with every tool we could possibly need it's fantastic you made a clock reference specifically because of harry didn't you let's say yes um <laughs> 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 And it is now here that I realize our recording will not fit evenly into two smaller episodes. After skipping ahead to see where the dividing lines might be for our remaining topics, I discover that we discuss further thoughts regarding Seth for a good 45 minutes before finally getting to the spoiler part of our outline, which takes another hour. And that's significant, because given how much free time I have, Trying to edit down another 45 minutes for this episode by Friday would likely stress me the fuck out. That means that in reality, this final episode 30 is going to be three parts. Part one is everything you just heard. Next week is a discussion on Seth that everyone can listen to based solely on what is present in this story. And in two weeks will be two different spoilery discussions. One on Mr. White, which takes into account the events of Steamheart, Uncivil Outlaw, and Stone Spring Maidens. And one on Seth, after the events of Steamheart and Nightfall of the Wendigo. That means that most listeners will be able to listen to the first section of Part 3, separated out by an intermission. To close us out today, I picked music that is more unusual for me, something without lyrics. It is topical because it's something that once more comes from the West Wing, put a penny in the jar. The music itself comes from Chopin's opus number 28, which consists of 24 piano preludes. This is number 4, which is distinct in that Chopin himself asked that it be played at his own funeral, 
along with Mozart's Requiem. The more important significance is that it was used in episode 4 of season 5 of The West Wing. President Bartlett in that episode meets a young Korean piano prodigy that uses this piece to explain the Korean word Han. In the president's own words, there is no literal English translation. It's a state of mind, of soul, really. A sadness. A sadness so deep, no tears will come. And yet, still there's hope. I cannot think of a sentiment more accurate to the end of Arlington. Something relevant to New Century in general. So I will leave you with this piece to play us out. And we'll pick up in one week with part two of our final episode on Arlington.